This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Uh, our speakers for the evening. Um, before I introduce uh, Dr. Anthony Clark, I want to say a little bit about uh, endowed uh, chairs and professorships and uh, the significance of his particular endowed chair. Uh, endowed chairs allow Whitworth University to honor the accomplishments of particular faculty members and to provide resources towards their future scholarship and continuing intellectual growth. These named positions also honor the values of the donors and those whose legacy is highlighted in each position's title. The holder of an endowed position has a continual reminder of the generosity of those who are partnering in her or his ongoing work as a scholar and teacher. The Edward B. Lindemann Chair is named for Whitworth's 14th president and was established in 1982 to honor his work as a futurist, business leader, and educator. The holder of the chair is uh, to enhance the academic program for Whitworth students and faculty through contributions to general education and to faculty and uh, development. The individual is also charged with enriching public conversation around significant issues as a Christian scholar. Dr. Tony Clark is in his third year of his four-year term as the Lindemann Chair. And as Lindemann Chair, he's been a diligent and prolific scholar, a splendid mentor to faculty colleagues, uh, and, and to student uh, research assistants. He's also been a catalyst uh, for intellectual community, both at Whitworth and internationally. Anthony E. Clark earned his PhD in Chinese history and culture from the University of Oregon in 2005. Um, he's studied languages and cultural history at leading universities in China and France. Clark joined Whitworth's history faculty in 2009 after serving as a professor of uh, Chinese history at the University of Alabama. He's been a recipient of several scholarly awards that have funded his research on Christianity in China, including grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Fulbright Foundation. He's been a researcher at the Vatican Secret Archives. Um, much of Dr. Clark's research explores the complex problem of how Western missionaries and intellectuals engage the cultural contrast between Chinese and Western ways of life and uh, traditions of thought. His interest is not merely historical. He is confident that careful study of the past will provide insights into the present day cultural encounters uh, that we ourselves are undergoing and to help us live faithfully and humanely in the face of cultural differences. In addition to his articles, reviews, papers, and chapters, Dr. Clark has published several scholarly books. His most recent book, China's Christianity from Missionary to Indigenous Church, uh, is a, uh, an edited volume of essays uh, from an international conference that Tony hosted here at Whitworth in the fall of 2015. Among his other books that have won high praise from reviewers is Heaven in Conflict, 
which examines the history of the Franciscan missionaries during China's Boxer Rebellion. The breadth of his scholarly interests are illustrated by his book uh, that will be published soon comparing Buddhism and Catholicism and by the two book projects that he's currently working on, one called Forgotten Images, Catholic Missionary Photography, 1890 to 1955, and the other called China Gothic, Alphonse Favier and the Diplomacy of Architecture. Tonight's lecture is entitled The Religious Facade, Cultural Encounters, and the Architecture of Conversion in China. We're also honored to have Dr. David Wang with us tonight to give a brief uh, response to Dr. Clark's paper. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Anthony Clark to give his 2018 Lindemann Chair Lecture. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. I'm very much hoping that my microphone is working. There are two things that struck me just now. One is uh, we only made a few programs because I didn't expect so many people. Um, and apparently at the, on the local NPR station, there was an announcement for this talk. So uh, that, that stunned me, and I'm so happy to see so many people. And the second thing that's striking me right now is that uh, as a Catholic at a, a Protestant institution, um, I, I'm always looking for the, the things that we share and what we share is that the front row is usually uh, almost entirely empty. So um, I'm, I'm feeling very much at home. I always feel at home here anyway. Um, the other thing I just want to say is that this will be podcasted. And apparently uh, there's been a, a lot of interest in the previous podcast. So I'll try to stick as close to script as possible, um, which means I'll be reading from a text. But I sometimes get excited and, and stray. Um, Pope Francis does that, actually. Um, well, that's a tangent, but um, the, the Jesuits are in, in have been traditionally in charge of communications at the Vatican, and previous Pope Benedict used to follow, he would send them his speech weeks in advance for an audience, and he would call them uh, maybe two or three days in advance and say, I'd like to change a comma and remove a comma from this sentence, maybe move it over three words. And, um, and the Jesuits loved him because they were finished and went to lunch right away after all of his appearances. But Francis goes off, so the Jesuits say that for the past five years, they've almost never had a lunch on time because they have to transcribe everything in the tangents. So um, anyway, God uh, makes straight lines and crooked ways. Or makes, there's a, I, don't, I don't remember the saying. <laughs> um, so I'm very pleased and honored to offer my third lecture in a series of four talks as the Edward Lindemann Chair. Um, and I'm especially happy to have received this very kind a generous introduction from Dr. Uh, Simon. And I anticipate with relish uh, the following remarks by Dr. David Wang, the, 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 well, Wang, but in Chinese it's Wang. So, but we're in America, so I can use both, I guess. Um, the, the chair of uh, Washington State University's Department of Architecture. And I'm also blessed, uh, very much blessed, to have so many friends here. Friendship is among the most important Chinese uh, characteristics. There's a very popular Chinese saying, that I, I like very much. Uh, the, the saying is, um, a human without friends is like, a life without friends is like a life without the sun. So I, I'm just so honored to have so many friends here as I look out among you. After uh, Dr. Wang's comments, uh, he and I shall be eager 
and I say he and I because I hope you ask him questions too, shall be eager to uh, receive any questions and statements from anyone here. My, my remarks should take about, I, I read the whole thing in my office. My program assistant must have thought I was crazy because I was speaking loudly and animatedly in my office alone, but it took 46 minutes. So, so I've dedicated my tenure as the Lineman Chair to confronting the question of religious freedom, tolerance, and dialogue. So my first talk considered what, according to my estimation, constitutes authentic religious freedom. In my second talk, I explored what happens when religious freedom exists in such a way that it facilitates intellectual dialogue between faith traditions, such as Christianity and Taoism. Tonight, I'll reflect on what happens when religious aesthetic sensibilities encounter one another and how that encounter engenders tension and, in the perfect context, accommodation. One might ask what the difference is between political and religious expressions. And this is a very good question. One of my favorite theorists, Walter Benjamin, once wrote that, quote, all efforts to make politics aesthetic culminate in one thing, and that is war, close quote. So I'm not sure I entirely agree with his assertion because not all politics are fundamentally evil, though we may believe this to be true after observing the political history of the past two centuries. But Benjamin does conjure the important question of whether political aesthetics, which are necessarily propagandistic, can be distinguished from religious aesthetics, which are also necessarily propagandistic. In any case, the interaction between political and religious aesthetics are, are where I wish to focus our attention tonight. And I'll center my talk on the domain of missionary architecture in China and its role in the aesthetic dialogue of cultures. It, it seems that ideas are more easily changed and nuanced than aesthetic monuments, such as buildings. This is why I've chosen to discuss church design tonight. The American architect Frank Lloyd Wright understood this and once exclaimed that, quote, a doctor can bury his mistakes, but an architect can only advise his clients to plant vines. So I'd like to confront a topic that Chinese Catholics, Chinese Christians, themselves often think about, and, and that is the cultural and aesthetic influence that Western Christian architecture has had upon Christian culture in China. I've entitled my current book project China Gothic because I suspect that few people would connect these two words together when thinking about China. And I think that it's actually quite important to place these terms together if we wish to better understand the former and present culture of Chinese Christianity, which has emerged and evolved from a long history of religious and cultural exchange. Few places are better known for Gothic architecture than France. And few places are better known in the history of Christian missions than France. By the 19th century, just above 75% of Christian missionaries throughout the globe were from France. That's globally, 75% and plus were missionaries from France. And when these French missionaries imagined what the most quintessential, quote, Christian architecture should be, it is not surprising that they envisioned such towering edifices as Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris or Notre Dame de Chartres or the flamboyant, lacy, gothic cathedral at Amiens. But China has its own aesthetic sensibilities. 
And I would like to discuss now what happened when two entirely different architectural aesthetic impulses collided, literally collided, in the shadow of the Forbidden City. I rather like this image to the right. It's a, it's, well, maybe I'll explain it in a moment. During the last decade of the Qing Dynasty, that's 1644 to 1911, China's last imperial dynasty, it's the end of imperial China, French aeronauts launched balloons high above Beijing's skyline and photographed the city's most famous sites. And so many people were terrified with these French balloons that the Chinese were running, even animals were running. So the French made this series of cartoons to, in a, in a sense, sort of remember the Chinese response, response to their balloons. These photographs, which were published in a 1902 book entitled La Chine à Terre et en Ballon, or China from Earth and Balloon, included the expected views of such places as the Forbidden City and the, forbidden, and the Summer Palace. These Beijing landmarks looked very appropriate in the context of the similar architectural structures around them. But while high in the air, they could not help but photograph a massive Western cathedral complex built by French Lazarists next to the Forbidden City. So Lazarists are, are uh, more formally called the Congregation of the Mission. It's from the Congregation de la Mission uh, that the word mission comes from. The word missionary literally comes from this uh, 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 society that was founded for missionary work by St. Vincent de Paul. The Congregation of Mission replaced the Jesuits in 1773 when Pope Clement XIV suppressed the Society of Jesus with the promulgation of his brief, Dominus Ac Redemptor. This architectural complex was built to house Beijing's imposing French Gothic cathedral. Needless to say, local Chinese were deeply conflicted by the aesthetic dominance of this towering church, which casts its shadow over the nearby temples and imperial offices. There were three massive cathedral churches in Beijing, each built in succession and each named Beitang in Chinese, which means North Church, because of where they rested in the city's landscape. In 1969, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France acquired a Chinese painting. Just in an antique store nearby, they discovered this huge tableau, which is about the size of this slide, and that's it in its entirety. Here's a detail. So in 1969, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France acquired a Chinese painting of the first Beitang church erected by the Jesuits near the Forbidden City in a neighborhood called Tanshikou. This large painting provides a remarkable view of what the Beitang complex looked like after it was completed in 1701. And then it was expanded in uh, 1713. The design of this first Beitang responds to the Jesuit mother church in Rome, the Chiesa del Gesù. One major difference between the Tanshiko Beitang and the Gesù is that the Beijing church has no volutes or raised section in the center of the facade, as with so many churches of the Renaissance or early Baroque periods. The French Jesuit painter and architect Charles de Belleville was the architect of this church, and the interior included 16 engaged columns that were painted green with Corinthian capitals, arched windows, and was adorned with paintings of the saints. 
one gains a revealing glimpse into what Catholic life was like at this church during the early 18th century by analyzing the event depicted in the large painting held in Paris. It is a solemn procession involving Qing officials uh, and uh, commoners and foreigners. And among the conspicuous features in this painting is Emperor Kangxi's inscription on the main placard surmounting the church facade, which reads, or Catholic Church built by imperial order. It was written in the calligraphy of the emperor, which meant the church was built under imperial order. Well, these very savvy Jesuits knew that by displaying the imperial inscription, the French Jesuits who lived there were able to abate attacks against their presence and religious message in China. And it was quite effective. Also, we see by the vitality of the event portrayed and the large number of men wearing official regalia, you can see by the hats, these sort of conical hats, especially when you see these squared patches, that is a, a, a giveaway that it's a Qing official, someone who works in the court. So they're wearing their official regalia and praying the rosary. I've made a square around all the images of, of uh, Qing officials praying the, the rosary. You can tell that Christian, the Christian community in Beijing at that time was flourishing. In 1827, Emperor Daoguang confiscated the church, so he changed the, emperor, the next emperor changed his mind, and sold the Tanshiko complex to a Chinese official who demolished the property and accompanying buildings. Alphonse Favier, a French Lazarist, later wrote a book, which is on display over there, that describes the final days of the first Beitong built by the Jesuits. And Favier wrote this, quote, Bishop Piret could not save the first Beitong, which was sold by order of the emperor to the Mandarin Yu, the Mandarin is the official, for the sum of 5,000 ingots of silver. It was worth 10 times more than that. The church was demolished in 1827, and the imperial characters, Chijian Tianzhutang, on the pediment, were taken away, wrapped in yellow silk, and carried to the treasury. The official Yu died without posterity, and Beitong passed over to a prince who allowed it to perish. His concubines were housed in a reconstructed building on the former site of this church, close quote. Well, the confiscated land was not returned to the missionaries until 1860, when the Lazarus bishop, Joseph Marshal Mouly, commissioned the French neo-Gothic architect Bernard Gustave Bourrière to rebuild Beijing's Beitong to be even more grand than the former site of the church. The design of the 1867 Beitong Cathedral was decidedly Gothic, just as Mouly had desired. Its facade consisted of two flanking uh, towers, each with layers of uh, lancet windows and three protracted pinnacles that extended the visual height of the building in keeping with the character of France's distinctive medieval churches, an elaborate rose window rested above the cross that topped the main entrance to the church. The only element of the church facade that revealed that it was in China were two Chinese guardian lions near the entrance. These lions, or shi in Chinese, were typically associated with imperial structures or gardens. Right? So they, they, were, they were installed at places that were claimed by the empire. 
representing cosmological balance. These stone shi consist of a male lion with its right paw resting on an embroidered ball, representing supremacy over the globe, and a female lion with her left paw over a playful cub, representing the virtue of nurturing one's children. Now, despite the presence of this Chinese architectural element, these two lions were diminished be uh, beneath the formidable European character of the Gothic church. Bruyère's design showed little interest in including Chinese aesthetic accents into the overall appearance of the facade. In short, the new Beitong church at Tsanshiko, this new uh, uh, church was, as the earlier Jesuit church, nothing like the surrounding Chinese architecture. It was a sign of Western presence anchored in the capital and of the bustling French enclave that flourished beneath its two towers, towers that the local Chinese officials constantly complained about due to the fact that they cast shadows over the nearby buildings owned by the emperor. Another feature of the French cathedral built in 1867 was the abiding French attachment to displaying a statue or painting of St. Michael the Archangel outside or within their mission churches. The Jesuit painter Giovanni Gherardini had produced an elegant painting of St. Michael that hung in the 1701 Beitong. Not only was this archangel who vanquished Satan from heaven to earth, a sign of spiritual conquest over non-Christian lands. But St. Michael was also a revered emblem of France in general. After the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, had founded the Catholic chivalric order of the Golden Fleece, the French king, Louis XI, established the order of St. Michael in 1469 to counter the Burgundian influence in the church. By the time of the Catholic mission in China during the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644, and Qing Dynasties, the history of this order and the image of the monumental Benedictine Mont-Saint-Michel Abbey, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth, I think, these symbols were embedded into the psychology of French uh, missionaries as insignias of French preeminence under the holy patronage of the militant archangel. The painting of Michael conquering the dragon in the Gothic nave of the French cathedral stood as a distressing symbol to the Chinese of the Catholic and French victory over China, whose imperial and cultural image was, regrettably, the dragon. The dragon, in the Chinese sense, is a good being, not an evil being. It's a felicitous being, and it was their national symbol. Its sinuous body sort of represents the Yellow River. So when Chinese would see this image, um, it, it was very distressing for them. And it, it literally caused many, many people, even converts, to leave the church or people to uh, refuse to enter the church. In 1887, the Beitang Cathedral at Tsanshiko was moved to a nearby location at Shishirku when the Empress Dowager decided to expand her palace complex into the area where the 1867 church was then located. Alphonse Favier was the architect of the new cathedral. 
So now that I've provided a, a historical sketch of Beijing's first two uh, Beitong cathedrals, I'd like to take a wide turn into how French nationalism was enmeshed with the Catholic mission of China's late empire and how Favier's design of the third Beitong participated in that nationalism while also functioning to set the aesthetic course of Chinese Catholicism that has remained actually uh, until this day. This is the moment where my wife, when I was reading this to her, said, now it gets interesting. <laughs> the first part was just history, but now it gets, inter gets interesting, so I hope that's true. Um, in, his book, in his book, Imagine Communities, Benedict Anderson refers to European provincialism during the height of Western colonialism as, quote, an unselfconscious provincialism that was a priori accustomed to the conceit that everything important in the modern world originated from Europe, close quote. A dimension of this Western attitude that Anderson does not allude to in his study is the self-conscious and purposeful aim of missionaries in collaboration with statesmen to convert non-Western societies to European-ness through a forceful ecclesial presence. This schema of political and missionary conversion shared an equally devoted religiosity. I mean a religiosity on the, both of the, on the side of the secular powers and the missionaries. One that in the French context held that Frenchness, that's my neologism for the day, that Frenchness being, in their view, the pinnacle of European-ness was the principal, quote, civilizing influence on any non-Western society. During the transition from the 19th to the 20th centuries, French missionaries in China, like their secular counterparts, were products of the ideal of what they called la mission civilisatrice, the civilizing mission, which had become by the Third Republic one of the bywords of French colonial expansion. One of the more adamant and influential proponents of France's, quote, civilizing mission in China was the Lazarist prelate and architect Alphonse Favier, who lived in China from 1862 until 1905. And I should say, too, that Favier, if you look at his photo carefully, you'll notice he's a rather portly person who refused in his life in China to eat Chinese food. He imported a chef from Paris who, who was shipped to China, who set up a boulangerie and a patisserie in his cathedral complex where he enjoyed good wine and good baguette and good French food during his life in China. Favier envisioned a Catholic China thoroughly infused with French aesthetics, especially the, quote, superior vestiges of French architecture. Whether the French conquest of China was political or spiritual, the common ambition of French diplomats and ecclesiastics was the Frenchification of the Middle Kingdom. So uh, let me conjure an image of this attitude before I describe how this ideal was manifest once indigenous builders were commissioned to realize a French vision through Chinese eyes and with Chinese hands. So I may seem a bit critical, maybe highly critical, of some of the elements of the missionary enterprise at first, but bear with me as I nuance my remarks and my conclusion. After an angry crowd, it's an intense moment in Chinese history, 
after an angry crowd attacked and destroyed an orphanage and church in Tianjin on June 21, 1870, the French minister of the tr- and church authorities negotiated the reconstruction of the Gothic missionary edifice. The church was named after the popular Parisian monument Notre-Dame des Victoires, Our Lady of Victories, which was itself commissioned by King Louis XIII after his victory over Protestants at La Rochelle. Alphonse Favier was the architect of the restored Our Lady of Victories church in Tianjin, paid for with reparation funds provided by local Chinese officials. Protected, so at the, at the opening ceremony, the blessing of the church, protected by a muscular display of gunboats and French gendarmes, and surrounded by a colorful appointment of French diplomats and Chinese officials, Favier conducted the dedication of his newly erected symbol of French civilization and French Catholicism, about which he later wrote, quote, it seems that the government here and the Chinese officials have finally understood that their best interest lay in loyally joining us for the ceremony of supreme reconciliation, close quote. Throughout his account of the restored church's dedication, Favier renders effusive accolades for the glory of the French Republic and the satisfaction of the native Chinese to be reconciled with this great European nation. Favier's architectural monument served as an emblem of the French and Catholic ability to convert China to a more, quote, refined and advanced society. A conversion not bereft of the conspicuous pretense of a dozen gumboats to encourage acquiescence to this ideal. So it was in this context that Favier designed his Gothic cathedral to be built in the heart of Beijing. Literally, if you just, from this door, come out and turn left, you just walk about 15, 20 minutes and you're at the Forbidden City. So this is taller than the tallest building in the emperor's uh, Forbidden City. So he built his Gothic cathedral in the heart of Beijing, Gothic, because for him, the very vision of such an edifice on Chinese soil was expected to convert and civilize China. While Gothic architecture was not in fact envisioned in 1141 by the French abbot Suget for the monastery of Saint-Denis, for missionary architects in China, such as Alphonse Favier, nothing represented French sentiment more than Gothic churches rising above their surrounding structures. La Mission Civilisatrice imbued Alphonse Favier with an attitude that was realized in his architecture. For him, Western architecture, especially the Gothic style, was not expected to be sympathetic with Chinese buildings around it, but rather convert China's aesthetic tastes along with its religious beliefs. In a letter to a fellow uh, Lazarus in 1866, Favier described China's indigenous architecture in these words. So to get a sense of how most of the missionaries uh, felt about Chinese architecture. He says, quote, In Beijing, all the buildings look like ruined barracks. And the imperial palace looks like a huge birdcage made of wood and paper, close quote. In contrast, he suggests that the, the local Chinese marvel at the, quote, miracle of the newly erected European-style missionary building, with its, with, with, and, and which he reassures his confrere, quote, would be unnoticed in France because such great architecture is common in Europe. 
In the same correspondence, Favier insisted that Western architecture, and this is the, maybe the most harsh quote I have from, from Alphonse Favier, he insisted that Western architecture, unlike the buildings of China, were built for permanence. Quote, Chinese never build for more than 50 years. And he harshly asserts, quote, their houses, like themselves, are coated with beautiful glaze, but with a dreadful heart inside. Close quote. Maybe some of you will ask, why are you writing a book about this person? Um, he's redeemable. He's redeemable, and there, there are good reasons um, to, 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 to assert that. So uh, missionary architects such as Alphonse Favier and Alphonse de Morluz designed churches for China uh, in largely Gothic revival and Romanesque styles, suggesting that the gospel and Gothic style were somehow equally important to the project of engendering a Christian China. The preparation of Morluz and Favier was typical of the architectural training for missionaries headed to China. Courses favored the ideas of Augustus Pugin, whose works had inaugurated the Gothic revival movement, in which John Ruskin was principally, uh, 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 was he, he was a principal uh, participant. Uh, if, if you want a really awesome and beautiful example of a Gothic revival uh, edifice here in Spokane, St. John's Cathedral is a really good example, and it's a beautiful, beautiful structure. These missionary architects under this influence advanced the Gothic style as much for its organic suitability with Roman Catholic liturgy as for its visual connection to European sensibilities. As a result of La Mission Civilisatrice, when Alphonse Favier uh, designed and built his cathedral in Beijing, his plan deliberately promoted a caractère français, or innate Frenchness, in the spirit of the Beaux-Arts tradition. Even larger and more commanding than its predecessor, the new cathedral was dedicated in 1888 with extravagant ceremony as the rite of consecration was performed and the French flag raised high above the new facade. The new Beitang was not only uh, located close to the Forbidden City, which was already an unpopular proximity to the emperor and his court, but it was oriented in the same north-south axis, axis as the imperial palaces. Am I one slide ahead? Oh, thank you. Ah, good. This is so much better. Okay, this will much, make much more sense. Thank you. See, as a, I never use PowerPoint, by the way, so this is my once-a-year uh, uh, moment to use uh, slides. So to, to repeat that, um, Favier designed his, his cathedral and oriented it on the same north-south axis as the imperial palaces. So this is the Forbidden City. Um, this is south. In China, south is traditionally up. If you look at early texts, they consider south up. And this here to the left is Beitang. And it's, it's sort of uh, uh, oriented in the exact same direction. So it mimics the cosmological symbolism of the emperor's imperial prerogative, the front entrance to both the plan of the Forbidden City and Favier's cathedral complex was oriented to the south, the direction toward which only the emperor was allowed to face. Alphonse Favier was among the most informed Western experts of such cosmological implications embedded in Chinese architectural orientation. Indeed, his book, Peking, et Histoire, uh, Peking Histoire et Description, remains today 
still one of our best sources for understanding Beijing's architectural meaning and history. Fabius Cathedral design actually disregarded the normative east-west orientation of Catholic Church construction, intended to direct the liturgy of the Mass toward the east, toward the rising sun, the liturgical representation of the second coming of Christ. It would not have escaped his Chinese neighbors that the directional alignment of Fabier's design was essentially a reconstruction of a Catholic and French forbidden city, though well, certainly on a smaller scale. So beyond this probably deliberate axial alignment, the actual construction was intended to more closely follow French aesthetic culture, which was expected to function as the, quote, civilizing element over the imperial city. Fabia's design intentionally exaggerated the Gothic elements of the previous uh, cathedral. He made the portals and windows more noticeably Gothic, adding lavish ornament to accentuate its French character. The new cathedral facade in the shadow of China's political center included most of the common components of a Gothic church. There were two towers uh, 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 flanking a tall gable ornamented with crockets, uh, these things that look like crenellation, uh, an almost excessive number of finial-capped pinnacles, arcades of finial-topped trifoil windows. There's a rose window in the front, very thick spokes, however. Uh, simple, undecorated archivolts above each of the facade's three portals. There are niches, and there are gargoyle drain spouts. It, well, actually, if one is in Be Beijing, if you're sort of walking around Beijing, one cannot help but sort of go, oh, when you see this tower, because it's still there. It's the only Christian church that survived the Boxer Uprising. And when one is walking around Beijing and you suddenly see this huge Gothic cathedral uh, right near the, the Forbidden City, one sort of stops, and it's, it's a very summoning thing to, 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 uh, to encounter. It's also next to my favorite place to get coffee and french fries in Beijing. So... While a distance, uh, at a distance from the church, uh, the cathedral is clearly identified as Gothic. When you first see it, you think, oh, that's obviously a Gothic church. When one more closely observes the facade and sides, he or she discovers that the crockets, finials, and gargoyles more closely follow Chinese temple design than those found in France. In the end... It is in the details that Favier intentionally encouraged Chinese, Chinese craftsmen and builders to insert their own traditions in the overall Gothic schema of the church's construction. So while he's saying Gothic will convert them, he writes in his letters, I'm so happy I'm having the Chinese uh, make the cathedral sort of accented with their own style. Well, even so. Uh, Favier's design of the cathedral and surrounding buildings deliberately created a French enclave, wherein French clergy could conceal themselves from the China around them. Um, one of my typical tangents, I, I was in Tibet, way up in the Himalayas, and we, I stayed at a village, and the village was, um, made its income through selling grapes that were used to make wine. And as I asked all of these Tibetan Buddhists, why are you making wine in the French style and harvesting grapes? And they said, goodness, well, 
you know, about 150 years ago, French missionaries came here, and they couldn't live here without wine and, well, communion wine, obviously, but they couldn't live here without wine with their dinners, so they planted these grapes, and that is the source of our income. It was a very interesting sort of remnant of the missionary enterprise uh, that I was staying with. So Fabian wanted to have a private chapel attached to the cathedral, so he added an apsidal chapel beyond the main apse, um, accessible with a door on the outside. So you had to go outside to get into this private chapel. Inside his small chapel, illuminated with several tall arched Gothic windows, Fabier designed an elaborate ceiling. The fantastic curvilinear vaulting appears to derive from late Gothic Lyran vaulting, which also seems to allude to Islamic ceiling styles that France would have discovered in its colonial enterprise in North Africa. This Aesthetic had been claimed by, at this time by France as a French aesthetic, although it was really Islamic. Aesthetically to him, very French. This was Bishop Favier's privileged escape from the atmosphere of the cultural other that surrounded the cathedral complex. The final result of Bishop Favier's civilizing Gothic church design for Beijing's cathedral was in many ways an admixture of three things. A French enclave, an imposing monument of French presence in China, and an example of Sino-French sort of hybrid architecture. Not all missionaries, however, shared Favier's desire to occupy China with Gothic architecture. The Belgian uh, missionary, also a Lazarist, Vincent Leb, for example, condemned what he viewed as the architectural imperialism latent behind Beitang's Gothic facade that competed with the imperial Chinese structures of the capital's forbidden city. In a letter that Leb wrote in 1917, he wrote this, quote, so Cole Hill is a hill right next to the forbidden city on the north side. He wrote this, I was walking with some other missionaries on Cole Hill in which part of the imperial palace grounds uh, I was walking with some missionaries on Coal Hill, which is uh, part of the Imperial Palace grounds. And from the pavilion at the top, one can see the entire city of Beijing. It looks wonderful. The towers, the temples, all with their upturned roofs. But in the center of this oriental paradise, there is an enormous eyesore. Frankly, it is hideous. Not at all attractive. It is Beitang, which is deliberately non-Chinese. Despite Leb's criticism of a Gothic church rising from the skyline of China's capital city, he nonetheless was, at least during the first part of his mission, influenced, like all French missionaries, by la mission civilisatrice. He once wrote, quote, I gave myself to God in a French order so as to make people love France as well as God, close quote. Well, in his view, to love God was also to love France. While a small number of missionaries disdained what they perceived as Roman Catholic, uh, a Roman Catholic monument of colonial France, the local uh, Chinese Catholic community was in fact somewhat pleased with the cathedral. And they viewed it as an architectural tribute to cultural hybridism. So the Chinese were seeing it in a different way, the locals. In the end, the civilizing mission of the French missionaries during the late Qing bears signs of more enculturation than has been commonly assumed by scholars. The final manifestation of the cathedral 
is a combination of the French aesthetic of la mission civilisatrice and the craftsmanship and taste of the indigenous Chinese who were commissioned to realize Favier's architectural vision. Favier wanted to erect an elaborate Gothic facade that presented an impressive Gothic interior once one entered the nave. What was finally built was a Sino-Western mixture of French Gothic with Chinese temple ornamentation. Uh, Beitong's Chinese and Gothic elements, and I'm close and go, approaching the end here, my conclusion. Beitong's Chinese and Gothic elements were accomplished by Chinese workers who we have evidence to believe were sometimes begrudgingly employed by French missionaries who constructed them contracted them. In 1926, a missionary handbook on church construction published in China, La Mission, La, La Missionnaire Constructeur Conseil Plan, The Missionary Builder, Advice and Plans. In this book, native craftsmen are described by its French authors, Jesuit authors, with rather pejorative undertones. Chinese workers are capable of building Western construction, the book informs, quote, on the condition that they are monitored. Even under French supervision, the book continues to note that, quote, their quality is only more or less well done. But what the booklet does not do is criticize the skills of Chinese craftsmen at building structures in their own native style, which the builders of the cathedral did more than with any other known, quote, Western-style church in China. Beitang is unique in its hybrid mixture of Sino-French design. There is little or no evidence that local craftsmen perceive this hybridism as a conflict deriving from Sino-Western cultural interaction, but was rather seen as an apt example of shared cultural enhancement. So here's where I'm shifting a little bit. From the Western point of view, there's a huge debate on whether or not you can build a Gothic church in a, in a country that doesn't have Gothic. And and that debate that's happening among missionaries is not happening among the Chinese. They were more worried that the shadows were too, too long. With the Republican era, that's 1911 to 1949, publications of China's preeminent architectural historian, Liang Zicheng, who's one of my heroes, Chinese critics began to more openly appreciate the presence of traditional Chinese elements in the cathedral's design, such as the terrace in front of the three portals uh, and two yellow-roofed pavilions containing a memorial stele flanking the Gothic facade. The terrace balustrade uh, uh, was made with an indigenous Chinese stone called Baiyu Shi, uh, white marble. Tsinghua University architectural historian Zhang Fuhe calls these Chinese elements, quote, a strong contrast to the church's Gothic form. And Zhang Yuping, in his study of Beijing architecture, states plainly that, quote, since Chinese materials were used and Chinese workers built it, when you look at Beitong, you perceive its Chinese-ness, close quote. In fact, despite the reality that it still uncomfortably represents, for some, a history of aggressive foreign imperialism in China, one might argue that many Chinese scholars, I would say all of them that I've encountered, today view the cathedral structure as, and interesting, interestingly, they view it as more Chinese than French. Merely by the fact that Chinese workers erecting the building with Chinese materials uh, uh, had given it a French sense. Right? The ideal 
of la mission civilisatrice is largely lost on local modern observers who often see Chinese architectural, architectural mores as the more, quote, civilizing influence. Right? So the Chinese feel like the Chinese characteristics have civilized the French Gothic. One scarcely finds today a Chinese description of Fabier's Beitong that does not emphasize the Chinese characteristics of the church's design that underscore the native tropes of its built heritage. Oh, oh, I should go back. My wife is in the top left picture. For scale, of course. The legacy of La Mission Civilisatrice has left China's landscape punctuated with soaring testaments of France's colonial ambitions, secular and ecclesial forces suffused as they were with French nationalism, arrayed themselves against China's traditional culture to transform it into an outpost of French Christianity. Outside of Beijing, Gothic cathedrals emerged from the urban centers of Shanghai and Guangzhou. These French monuments of the civilizing mission are actually now the oldest structures in areas once predominated by classical Chinese buildings. Chinese modernity has replaced now demolished or neglected traditional Chinese structures and has grown up around France's missionary enterprise. In the wake of so many new buildings in China, buildings cheaply made that have collapsed in recent tragic earthquakes, Chinese architects have been inspired by the sturdy construction of Western church design. That's, those are their words. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote that, quote, we always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap, close quote. I love that saying. We always pay, pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. Sometimes it pays to spend a little more to have something a lot better. With this in mind, church buildings in China have continued to design in a predominantly Western style. Although at time, as time passes from the era of missionary architects such as Alphonse Favier, Chinese perceptions of Western church design have changed. I find this next slide stunning. Brace yourself. Some might disagree with uh, local Chinese architects who designed Hebei's Catholic Seminary at Shijiazhuang. These builders identify the facade of their new seminary as, quote, Gothic. Um, this curious fusion of disproportionate Gothic elements with the intended or unintended addition of four Islamic-inspired minarets exemplifies a growing number of churches in China that represent a quiltwork of architectural styles, more specters of a Gothic past than genuine representations, representations of what remains of La Mission Civilisatrice. Edward Said once said in an interview, quote, Every empire tells itself in the world that it is unlike all other empires, that its mission is not to plunder and control, but to educate and liberate, close quote. Bishop Alphonse Favier, like his French confrères, held the conviction that the best way to liberate the indigenous Chinese was to erect Gothic structures high above them to raise their gaze upward toward the cross of the church and the flag of France. Christian architecture in China, and especially in Beijing, has been freed from what once was a bitter conflict between Roman Catholic missionaries in China who had clashing views of what missionary architecture should look like. Today, 
Western designs, such as Gothic, are the preferred architectural styles among Chinese Christians, which is ironically a way for China's church to claim its own identity, free of foreign pressures. So let me just conclude with a, a, a comparison of two missionary bishops and two building manuals that represent the transitional phase between the French ideal of mission civilisatrice and uh, the post-imperial ideal of an enculturated Chinese church. In less than two decades after Favier's death, the desire to build Western-style churches in China was challenged by a new bishop, an Italian named Celso Costantini who became a very, very influential thinker in Protestant church design, actually. In contrast to the characteristically French architectural views of Favier, Costantini reasoned that Western churches are poorly suited to the Chinese cultural context. Costantini, who himself had studied art back in Italy, convened uh, China's first so-called Council of China in Shanghai in 1924. And at that gathering of bishops, and clergy, he attempted to instill, instill a new spirit of enculturation into a missionary enterprise that had been, in his mind, largely Eurocentric for more than a century. At the Shanghai Council, he said in his speech, quote, in constructing and decorating the sacred buildings and residences of the missionaries, styles of Western art should not be employed, but as far as possible, and according to opportunity, forms of native art and Chinese people should be used, close quote. So while Bishop Favier's pet architect was Alphonse de Morluz, Archbishop Costantini appealed to the Dutch Benedictine architect uh, Edelbert Gresnicht to help him, quote, synthesize uh, the future church and architecture of China. Under Costantini's patronage, Gresnicht designed several mission buildings, in what he viewed as a cynicized style. Also indicative of the uh, aesthetic transition from the Favier to Costantini eras were the publications of two manuals for the construction of Christian buildings. The work I've already mentioned, uh, The Missionary Builder, Advice and Plans, which was hostile toward native Chinese architecture, and the Comment Bâtirons nous églises, chapelles, écoles en Chine, how We Build Churches, Chapels, and Schools in China. The first manual, published in 1926, followed the architectural ideals of Alphonse Favier, while the second book, published in 1941, represented the, go the goals of cynicization encouraged by Costantini and Gresnik. Vincent Leb's criticisms of Beijing's cathedral signified the transitional period during which the aesthetic impulses of the mission changed from Gothic forms of Favier to the China-inspired forms of Gresnik. So after, um, after Costantini had arrived in China, missionaries were mandated to design and build churches in what he called the indigenous style, even though the architects who later designed, quote, these Chinese churches, the architects were European. And what they built looked more like what one observed in French chinoiserie than what one saw when walking through the streets of China. Chinese Christians called this Western, quote, fantasy of what the Chinese church should look like. They called it the, quote, pagoda style. Like, whenever a foreigner designs a Chinese church, it looks like a pagoda. 
And as the French sinologist Françoise Aubin has accurately stated, quote, the pagoda style, as it was called by those hostile to it, is not at all in fashion in today's Christian China. Close quote. So, my final words. Indeed, when one asks a Beijing Christian now, what style of architecture is most suitable for Christian worship in China? When one asks a Chinese Christian, what is the most suitable architecture for worship, Christian worship in China? The almost unanimous answer is Gothic, like Beitang. As uh, John Henry Newman once wrote, Christians will lay out their resources not only to feed the hungry or clothe the naked, but also to, quote, build and decorate the visible house of God, close quote. In China today, most of the resources used to build and decorate the house of God are used to erect Western-style churches, and they do so precisely because Chinese Christians are finally able to build how they want to build without the advice and pressures of foreign missionaries. Interestingly, what China wants now is Gothic. While it seems that the West has abandoned its own architectural legacy. Here's where I reveal my own sense. I once asked a priest in Tianjin, in the, literally in, next to the facade of his Gothic church, I once asked a priest in Tianjin what he thought what he thought of how Catholics in the West practiced their faith and build their churches. And he responded that it might be a good idea to send Chinese missionaries to the West to help restore there what has been lost. Today, the Christian aesthetic of, China's, uh, uh, the, the Christian aesthetic of China is almost precisely what it was when Alphonse Favier imagined and built a Catholic and French mission in Beijing. Victor Hugo once wrote that, quote, the greatest products of architecture are less the works of individuals than of society, rather the offsprings of a nation's effort than the inspired flash of one person's genius, close quote. One of the most appealing aspects of Beijing's Catholic aesthetic is that when it is carefully observed, it is seen to be the result of the genius of many societies. It is truly Catholic with both a small and capital C. Thank you. So I will hand this over to Professor Wang. Negotiations between two cultures. And in this particular case, it's uh, European Catholicism with the French variety. And uh, at that time in China, Neo-Confucianism, Qing Dynasty Neo-Confucianism, which included and embraced uh, elements of Taoism and uh, Buddhism. So this is the sort of the negotiation in that, that facade had to do. So let me talk to you a little bit about architectural facades. And I want to play a game. So everybody close your eyes. You got your eyes closed now. I want you to picture in your mind's eye the Parthenon atop the Acropolis in Athens. Do you see that? Do you see that? The, the, the Doric columns, the sort of the pediment. Uh, this is the masculine 
most masculine of the classical orders. Okay, keep your eyes closed. I want you now to picture the Experience Music Project in Seattle. That's the one that looks like somebody tried to bake a loaf of bread in their Instapot but didn't quite pull it off. <laughs> do, you see, do you see that? I mean, and, those, and the food coloring, what was that all about? What's that all about? I mean, okay. This uh, two buildings bracket 2,500 years of Western architectural facades. And what's Western architecture about? It is about buildings capturing in physical form the highest philosophical ideas of our of Western civilization. And it changes all the time. We've come, we've moved from the, the Parthenon to the Experience Music Project. I mean, I, I hope that encourages you as a uh, picture of where we are now as a civilization. So that's, that's Western architecture, Western facades. Again, it facades, architectural forms in the West always try to capture the highest philosophical ideas of a cultural period. Okay, let's go to the Chinese side. Dr. Clark mentioned um, Liang Sicheng. Uh, Liang Sicheng is um, highly, it's widely regarded as the father of modern architecture in China. And um, you know, very famous architect. Um, here's the issue though. He went to the same school I did. He got his uh, architecture degree at the University of Pennsylvania exactly 50 years before me. Uh, my point is that he was a Western trained architect. And after he graduated, he took his grand tour in Europe and he went back to China and became a teacher and an architect and became the father of modern Chinese architecture. A student of his many years later reminisced about what it was like to study under Liang Sicheng. And he and his, his classmates thought it very odd that Liang Sicheng came back and he was obsessing about facade. I mean, he was, it was all about what, what kind of facade should we put on Chinese architecture? Because for 2,500 years in China, architecture didn't have facades. I mean, it had a vertical dimension, but it, architecture in China was never about capturing ever-changing philosophical ideas as it changes. Um, so architecture in China, the imperial architecture for 2,500 years and longer, they were made out of wood, they never last, so we don't have, we have very few uh, pieces of architecture beyond, beyond the late Tang Dynasty. But they, they all look the same, because there was never any pressure to um, reflect cultural ideals in our architecture. This is a strange idea. It is in this context that the, the uh, the Gothic architecture of which Dr. Clark s spoke of came in uh, in the Qing Dynasty. And it was, again, it was a negotiation between, between two very different cultures. I mean, you saw those pictures. I mean, this is not Chinese architecture. Um, and at the conclusion of his lecture, Dr. Clark says that now Christians in China generally accept, I, I believe he used the word almost unanimously accept, 
the fact that Christianity, well, that's what it looks like. That's what uh, we should send missionaries over to America to build Chinese, uh, to Gothic uh, cathedrals. I want to tell you that when I'm with my colleagues in China, academic colleagues, meaning non-Christians generally, uh, they would look at one of those things and they would still think, that is what the foreigners do. So as a Christian and as a Chinese Christian who has, my own life was impacted by missionaries to China, that's another story. I still long for a time when worship structures and worship venues in China could reflect physical forms that, draw, that are drawn out of its own indigenous ideas. Let me up the ante a little bit. Nowadays, uh, we hear a lot about importing reform theology to China. China needs reform theology. Well, uh, this would be like bringing Luther's Wittenberg, Zwingli's Zurich, Calvin's Geneva, to the towns and hamlets of China. What do you think about that? What are the facade-like issues that we are doing when we bring reform theology into China? I just uh, I thought, what are the facade-like issues we have to deal with when, when we deal with something like this? Now, mind you, most of my, I mean, mind you, I am mostly reformed, so relax. I mean, I mean although, although the more I know Dr. Clark, my reform stock is lo getting lower. But, uh, but what do you think about that? It's always about, we always are negotiating two cultures and what facades are we using when we do that? Let me bring it uh, closer to home. We all are negotiating our little cultures. I see a lot of students here tonight. You are, how do you negotiate the cult, your culture with your professors? Or professors, I mean, I'm colleague to colleague. Uh, WSU professor to a Whitworth professor. What's the facade-like issues related to that? Uh, to a Whitworth professor, I see Dr. Nieder here, Dr. Nguyen. Um, are we going to be the Father Favier approach? Be impositional. I don't care that I, my churches are usually east-west, but just because of you, I'm going to build it north-south <laughs> to show a thing or two to the emperor. Are we going to be that way in our, in our little cultural negotiations? Or are we going to take the, the Father Leb, is that how I pronounce it? Father Leb, uh, Father Constantini, who decried this type of uh, architectural imperialism. So, so 
let's go incognito. I know that the, um, Father Lepp was wearing that Qing Dynasty thing, and he probably also had the Qing Dynasty queue in the back, and sort of the Hudson Taylor approach. But make no mistake, that also involves facades. So we're going to be dealing with facades. The, the issue of facades is more than just physical architecture. It's, 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 it's how ideas are transmitted between cultures and negotiated between cultures. It's how relationships, we conduct relationships. We have an issue of facades. As long as we are alive, as long as we have this life to live, facades are always a negotiation. And we saw an enormous one uh, tonight. But again, you and I, we are constantly dealing with facades. How are we managing them? How are we uh, managing it so that truly there could be communion between cultures? And then, of course, at the end of the day, Behold, what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called the children of God. We don't know what we will be then, but we know we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So at that point, I don't think we'll need any more facades. But what do we do about facades in the meantime? This is the question I'll leave with you. Thank you. You hold that. I'll sit if there happens to be. Okay. Is this on? Right. Wow. So I don't know if uh, if if uh, Professor Wong was supporting my argument or redirecting it. Um, but, but thank you so much. That was great. Are there any questions for Professor Wong or myself? Yes. Right. Yeah, so that, that is a really interesting. I'm going to go back to doesn't that strike anybody else? And the, the architecture professor, didn't this, David, didn't this strike you? This, le, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just. So Beitong in the Cultural Revolution was turned into uh, grade sc uh, high school. And the towers just next to the pediment, that triangle on the top, it, they were flattened. The towers were flattened. And uh, where the pediment is, that triangle on the top was put the huge uh, five red star. And it was uh, all the crosses, everything were removed, the statues were removed, and it was turned into a, a high school. Um, the next door was the high school, but the actual church itself was the cafeteria. So, but it was spared because it was just, it was there, it was sturdy, and it worked very well for a cafeteria. And most of the, all the, all the Christian churches were closed and turned into other things like warehouses, and one was a toy factory. Right? So anyway, that's that historical answer. Other questions? Mr. Zagalo.
I love these. Right, these great. These are great historical questions. That more theoretical questions. Professor Wong is better at answering than I am. But so uh, all the churches were raised and destroyed by the Boxers in 1900 between the months of July and August. The and there were Anglican, there were Presbyterian, there were Baptist. Every denomination was essentially established there, and lots of Catholic churches. They were all destroyed. This one was protected by French and Italian Marines who who actually stole the cannons from the boxers and the Qing troops and surrounded the cathedral and just shot everybody all the time. They survived. Um, the other places were raised, and what happened was the foreign troops, there were eight countries that went into Beijing August 16th of 1900 and established, including American cavalry. If you go downtown on Riverside Avenue, just past the, the San Marco apartments, there's an obelisk. That obelisk is a commemorative obelisk of Spokane soldiers who went to the Boxer Relief Expedition in, in Beijing. So Spokane sent a, 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 an expedition of cavalry to China who went into the Forbidden City. And all of these eight, these eight allied armies occupied the Forbidden City, stole their Peking, their, their Pekingese dogs, right? And, and stole a lot of things. But, and the emperor fled, and the empress dowager fled. But when they came back, the, the military presence was still there, and they f um, negotiated. The negotiation is a, uh, scare quotes around that because there were a lot of, uh, there's a, a large military presence. They negotiated for reparation funds. So what happened then was so much money was given to all the missionaries after the Boxer Uprising that they rebuilt all of the churches in more grand style. So the money was, so the tower, um, the first Beitong Tower, if you look at it, before the Boxer Uprising, I hope I can get to it. Um, the first one, uh, I, don't, I guess I don't have an image of it. So the first tower was very short. Um, and then after the box, it was only this high. It was only to here. And then after the boxer uprising, he got so much money that he decided he would build it up. And actually, it was against the law for him to do that. So the churches, the, the Anglican church, the Presbyterian church, they all rebuilt in grand style. And the Presbyterian church is fantastic. It's very popular, very popular. And I wanted to take my students there, but it was closed. So, yeah. Every church in Beijing except for this one was built in 1901. Gothic. It's Gothic inspired. Mm -hmm. Gothic inspired. Actually, no. No, it doesn't. It doesn't look, there's really, it looks almost pure. I mean, you could almost move it to here and you wouldn't tell, couldn't tell the difference. Yes. So, right, that's a good question. So after 1949, denominations were made illegal. So the only legal Christian identities that you can have are Catholic, and Protestant. And in fact, the name for Catholic is Tianzhujiao, Catholic, and the name for Protestant is Jidujiao. Uh, but in Chinese, in English, they translate it as Catholic and Christian. And so if you're a Protestant, you're a Christian. If you're a Catholic, you're a Catholic. It's interesting. But now in China, they say Jidu, follower of Jesus. Catholics and all. So to answer that, denominations are against the law, completely against the law. So there are, there are Presbyterian and Methodist churches but they're not, they cannot identify as that. Although, secretly, of course they do. Many of them do, right? And they, they associate with Presbyterian or Methodist 
very much you, you'll see very charismatic churches. Uh, you'll see Pentecostal churches. You'll see Methodist churches. You'll see Presbyterian churches where they read the Institutes of Calvin. So you, they're, they're maintaining those identities, but they're doing it as a kind of subterfuge. Yes. I'm gonna, will you answer that? Well, uh, you know, the Gothic, um, Dr. Clark mentioned Suger of Saint-Denis, and uh, uh, the Gothic flowered uh, as a result, of, this is a short version of a long story, as a result of the collapse of the Roman Empire and the influx of uh, uh, many, many, what, what we would call pagan, uh, what they called pagan cultures surrounding what was once the Roman Empire influx. And all of those elements um, very complicatedly, complicatedly mingled with the, the Romanesque, which was a was a uh, effort to retain uh, Roman uh, signatures and architecture. But all of those uh, non, shall we say, Christian elements. By the way, the Romans thought it wasn't Christian either. But uh, but um, uh, uh, that produced the the Gothic. I mean the. The, the key in all of this is the spiritual yearning for immateriality. And that is what drove the sort of the inner, inner drive of, of the, just the beauty of the Gothic churches where it, it's like stones up in the air, you know. So, but but the, the, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I, I don't know that, um, I mean, the original Christians, as you well know, met, in, met the, the reason they were Christians and the reason why they were called atheists was because they didn't meet in buildings. They, so, so the notion of that Christianity needs a building, uh, this, is a, this is a long conversation. Answer, yes. You saw a dragon? Oh, oh, the yes, right. Um, let's see if I can find that. I, I, I took that photograph just because I was enthralled with the gargoyle. Yeah, that is a dragon. That is a dragon gargoyle. The architects, the, the build, the, Favier said, just build the gargoyle as you imagine it. And the Chinese built it as a dragon. It was a, almost, and I, uh, my theory is that it's a little bit of a, you know, you have this image of conquering the dragon, but we're going we're gonna to cover your church in them, right? <laughs> and I, I just love that kind of, kind of builder's resistance, right? But, but yeah, that's, def that's definitely, it's a long, yeah. Good question. Any other questions? Um, David and, go. Uh, 1980, it depends. Some were opened in 1981, but by 1984 to 87, they're really, really open. And I love this, right, because it's an interesting question. Because when the government reopened the churches in the 80s, because Mao died in 1976, Deng Xiaoping really emerges as the most powerful person after Mao. And Deng 
says we have to open up to the world and we have to do business with the Western nations and if we illegalize the predominant religion in the Western nations and then, then trade will be difficult. So he says, let's just let religion reemerge. But he, when the churches reopened, he, I don't, he didn't know how to do, deal with this with the Protestants, but he, he, deal, he, he had a, a system with the Catholics. When the churches reopened, they opened, so 81, 84, they really started to open. Um, he had a, a party member at the door of every church the first day they reopened. And when a, when a Catholic would come for the first mass, they would say, like make the sign of the cross. And then they would do the sign of the cross. If they couldn't do that, then they wouldn't let them go to church. If they did it, then they asked them to write down their name. The Chinese didn't trust them. So like three people did the sign of the cross, and then the party members didn't have anyone else, but they were going in the back door, <laughs> right, and then filling the churches up. So, so there was a definite sort of fear. But what they did recognize is that in terms of Protestants and Catholics, there were like three times more people in the churches than the government had registered before the Cultural Revolution. So the number of Christians at least tripled during the 10 years where Christianity was illegal. And that's a fascinating thing. to deal with that one? Because that's a really interesting question. How do we process Western architecture in China and how, now how do we process Chinese architecture now emerging in like Chinatowns? Right. Maybe uh, you know, I'm not aware that there is a, a statistically a substantial amount of this going on where Buddhist temples are, I mean that, that China is importing their um, their temple structures to the West. I'm, I'm not aware of that. Um, I mean, this, uh, what Dr. Clark told us about is, I mean, this is major stuff. I mean, it's starting from the 19, uh, 1800s on. Um, China, the importation of Western ideas, Western buildings was en masse. I mean, to the point where my, in my own view, China's still not digging, hasn't still, has not yet dug out from underneath that. And um, I'm, I'm not sure that there's an equivalent architectural issue going the other way. Um, China's importing all sorts of other stuff, don't get me wrong, but, but at Buddhist temples, I'm not, I'm not sure that's, that's of a uh, substantial amount of it to be a sort of a theoretical concern. Okay, Adam. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Liang Shitsong, when he uh, went back, I want to say 1920s, somewhere, somewhere around there, um, it, architecture was not a recognizable professional category uh, before the 20th century. I mean, so you want to talk about uh, cultural differences and, and, and this sophisticated culture um, didn't have that as a category of concern. So. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I want to drive home the fact that that we have buildings that have to look this, that, or the other way. This is a this is a unique uh, sort of Western phenomenon. 
you know, comes down from the, you know, Greco-European Western phenomenon. And um, so to your question, what um, China doesn't have um, an indigenous, there's some, some stuff that's appearing, but they don't have an indigenous, in fact, I just wrote a paper on um, how uh, we can derive some architectural principles for China indigenously from the philosopher Shunzi, which is a, a, a you know, or the Warring States period um, philosopher, because China, because because of the 20th century, uh, when China modernized, all of it was imported. So not only do we not have, um, I say we, I mean, um, over there I say, I say we too, but um, uh, not only do we have, uh, do, do we not have Chinese Christianity expressed in architecture. We don't have any uh, Chinese stuff expressed in, in indigenous terms. It's all imported. So that's why architecture in China today is, is a trim, it's all like the wild, wild west. I mean, it's, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of it, but it's, a, it's about, a, you know, in terms of depth, cultural depth, in terms of cultural connectivity with her own roots, it's about a, you know, like an inch thick. But there's a lot of it. So our goal is to finish around about 8.30. But did, did you have a question, someone over here? And then Gary has a question, right? And then in the back. Oh, grief. I, I have a sort of a personal uh, aversion to that, but now I look, shouldn't. There's stuff that looks like that in the US, too. So. Oh, right, absolutely. I hope I'm going in the right direction. I think maybe I am. OK, when it happens, I'll avert my gaze. We're there almost. Yes, okay. Right, right. Right, right. I think this, I, I actually haven't been to this seminary, so I think it goes, I think the nave is, is quite long. It might. Right, right. That's a, a great observation. Well, actually, those are the words, I think those are the words they use. I think, I think there was one source that, you know, they sort of talked about how the architect liked the minarets that didn't, and thought it was sort of Mid-Eastern, Middle Eastern Christian influence. Right, right. That's a great observation. No, it's the it's this part that that rather is jarring to me. But Emily, right? Right. 
How does it, so how does the chinoiserie play into whose critiques? Yeah. The, right, so Favier's in Paris, you know, around the time where Hugo's work is popular and chinoiserie is all over the place, right? And I think that that's a very good question. Unless Professor Wang knows, I, I've, I haven't read anything ab by the missionaries about chinoiserie. But do you have something? No. I mean, but otherwise, other than in general, the the import of uh, Chinese ideas out to Europe uh, tremendously preceded the um, um, the, the British who came up with the idea of sending opium the other way because they wanted to balance trade. You know, but tea came over the Shinat. How do you pronounce that? Chinoiserie. Um, all of that stuff came over. There was the the, the picturesque tradition, picturesque garden tradition in, in, in England. This is all uh, coming over from from China for uh, quite a quite a while. So the balance of trade was um, very much against the European countries, and this is why they devised this notion of let's let's make more drug addicts <laughs> and 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 force force opium on them. And and from that you have modern China. Right. Well, so with with uh, I think that is a great ending. With uh, Brit the British attempt to make China a drug addict is a great way to end tonight. So first, I would like to thank Professor Simon and Professor Wong uh, very much for the introduction and for your comments. And uh, also, if you haven't seen these interesting items over here, the seal and the tile—that's a tile from Beitang's roof—and. Um, the seal, it was made in the imperial kilns that were used to, for the Forbidden City. Um, so it has the imperial seal on it. That's kind of cool. But um, thanks to all I, of you. I just also oh. want to say thank you, sir, for oh. uh, having me come. And um, it's, a, it's an honor to be here and uh, to be with all of you. I mean, when I was writing my book on Chinese architecture, I told my wife, I wish I had known some of this stuff because I was looking for examples of uh, hybridization, you know, between Chinese, and, I, and then I see this thing, I mean, um, you don't want to see that every day, but you need it in a book. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, um, anyway, I, I just want to thank well, Dr. No, Clark, thank and you. All right, good to be well. here.